the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for tuning in. As always, follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow. And uh, we begin this installment by talking about uh, lawlessness in America, which persists in a variety of forms. Uh, one form, of course, is the, the rioting, the uh, violence, the uh, race-inspired, politicized violence that takes the form of, for example, in Phoenix, a drive-by shooting of a U.S. marshal uh, who was shot outside a federal courthouse. Thankfully, uh, he was shot in the the vest and he will survive, unlike a federal marshal Underwood, who was assassinated in Oakland. Uh, we talk about this against the backdrop, of course, of those two officers in Compton uh, who survived an assassination attempt. That's one form, the rioting in Lancaster, the rioting in Rochester. The other form is just the daily occurrence of what happens when you've given your streets over to the violent mobs, whether they be organized in street gang form or in Black Lives Matter form? Uh, Chicago, Monday, carnage is not just for the weekends in Chicago. 14 shot too fatally. And uh, that prompted Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown to be more pointed in his remarks about uh, the side of the criminal justice system over which he has little control. That's the prosecution side. That's the Cook County State's Attorney side. That's where Kim Fox resides. And he can't figure out why uh, violent felons are released with a little, if any, bail on electronic monitoring sometimes and go out and commit crimes uh, while uh, they have been turned back or when they have been turned back on the streets. This doesn't seem particularly complicated to him as it doesn't seem particularly complicated to Many common sense Americans. What are we doing? I mean, it's beyond frustrating. It makes your blood boil if you're one of those victims to a person that's out of jail on electronic monitoring that had previously seven felonies and was arrested by Chicago police officers and his gun was recovered for possession of an illegal gun because he's a felon in possession of a gun and yet he's out of jail. It's beyond frustrating, but I just don't want to be the reporter. I just want to be the fact checker on... This is what we are doing. We're making the arrest of people who possess illegal guns, which should make us safer. And yet every weekend we can bring forth an example of a person out of jail that should be in jail. Violent offenders need to spend more time in jail in this city. They need to be held more accountable. He didn't mention Kim Fox by name, but he certainly mentioned her by performance. And that was a topic in ABC's uh, town hall with Clinton Foundation donor zero and President Trump last evening, the president and the people. Uh, and uh, the question of uh, 
uh, of peace on the, on America's streets and <laughs> Stephanopoulos doing his best as a ambassador for the left of trying to turn this on Trump. You promised that streets would be safe and they're not safe. So it's your fault. But you take a look. This is a Democrat problem, George. I know you're a Democrat, but this is largely a Democrat. If you just take a look at the list, every Democrat city, almost not all, but a lot of them, certainly in the top 25, even if you go to the top 50, almost every city is run by the Democrats. People don't respect our Mr. police President, and they have to respect You them. promised four years ago at the Democrat, at the Republican convention, I'm going to restore law and order. And in I this have, country. except in Democrat run cities. Look, for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Heather McDonald. She's the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor to City Journal and a New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, as always, Dan. I appreciate coming on. Um, you know, what about um, this, uh, just that exchange with Stephanopoulos and Trump, I thought was so instructive. Uh, you know, you promised to keep us safe and we're not safe in New York and Chicago and L.A. and Rochester and Lancaster. So it's your fault. Well, the left can't figure out whether Trump is a, uh, a totalitarian tyrant or an ineffective, uh, you know, weak man. If he every time he has tried to use federal force to try and protect federal property, uh, then he's accused of fomenting riots. Then he's accused of of uh, destroying constitutional liberties, accusations which are completely baseless. Uh, but but they can't figure out what he wants them to do. The fact of the matter is, is that criminal law enforcement is overwhelmingly a local responsibility. Uh, it's it's the combination of local police forces, the mayors that are directing officers uh, that are directing their chiefs in many cases to use, as, as de Blasio said, a light touch with, with rioters uh, and, and elected district attorneys. And the reason for this across-the-board failure to hold criminals accountable, the, the main thing driving public policy today, Dan, is disparate impact. Uh, we are un- dismantling virtually every aspect of the criminal law enforcement system, the system that is fair, a system that is neutral, objective, the most process-sensitive system in the world, we're dismantling it in the name of disparate impact, That every because every law enforcement practice does have a disparate impact on blacks because the criminal offending rate is so high. The criminal victimization rate is so high. The police are in minority neighborhoods. The prosecutors that are doing their jobs are trying to put criminals away because they are preying on law-abiding blacks. But we are, we are playing with fire, Dan. The breakdown that you so rightly describe that is going on on a daily basis the attacks on law enforcement officers on a daily basis that doesn't get covered when they get out of their car to make a stop, they are routinely now assaulted, cursed at, interfered with, resisting arrest. This should be the most important thing in our world right now. If this continues, we are losing the possibility of civil peace. There is nothing more important. This should be the centerpiece of Trump's re-election campaign. 
And I think I think what was uh, shocking to so many people this week, even more shocking than that attempted assassination of those two officers in Compton, because we've seen that before in Dallas four years ago, in Brooklyn six years ago. This has been going on for some time, as you documented in your book, War on Cops. Uh, but I think the thing that was just as shocking to people was the crowd gathering outside that hospital and saying, we hope they effing die, trying to disrupt um, uh, medical professionals from rendering aid, not just to those officers, but anybody else who came to the emergency room at that hospital. Uh, it, 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 it showed you a level of barbarism that I don't think people fully appreciate. No, they don't. Trump, every time he's used the word savage to refer to like MS-13 criminals who cut people's hands off with machetes, the, the public, the, the press goes nuts. Uh, when he refers to criminal gangs that engage in drive-by shootings of children, the most insane barbaric activity that the America turns its eyes away from, it cannot look at what's going on in the, the inner city. Instead, we're talking about white supremacy. Are you kidding me? Mm. Are you kidding me? This is, as you say, it is a level of barbarity and savagery, that attitude towards the cops, uh, that has to be noted, and it's going on every day in our in our cities, every single day. Cops are walking off the job. There are mass resignations. Uh, who can blame them? You know, this weekend we had had rioting in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You know, the city of the Amish, uh, right. for for swearing for swearing electricity and 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 modern technology. We had riots because. A man ran at an officer with a knife who'd been involved in a domestic violence incident. The last year he'd slashed four people with a knife, and the officer shot him just, by all accounts, appearances, justifiably, threat of lethal force. Then we had the riots. So the rules now for the cops are they are supposed to allow themselves to be shot or slashed in penance for their alleged racism. That's the rules of engagement, and it's no surprise that officers are officially walking off the job, resigning, taking disability leave, and are backing off of proactive policing with the predictable result that shootings and homicides across the country and cities are going through the roof. Uh, when we come back with Heather McDonald, I want to pick up on terms of what the response is in suburban communities, as uh, suggested by Bill McGurn in the Wall Street Journal, and just data on gun purchases. Uh, Heather McDonald, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, best-selling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. We'll be right back with you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Heather McDonald. She is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor at City Journal, and the New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Bill McGurn, writing in the Wall Street Journal, on Monday it became official. The police issued me a gun permit. Never did I imagine I'd be here. Not because I was anti-gun. My dad was career FBI. 
It just was not a family that uh, chose to participate much in uh, you know, gun-related activities, going to the range and so forth. And he writes, what changed? Certainly the rioters played a key part, but far more shocking than the rioters themselves has been the associated spectacle of police and political authorities across America standing down in the face of night after night of criminal behavior directed at the lives and the livelihoods of innocent, law-abiding citizens. Even in suburbia, many are no longer confident our authorities would or could keep us safe. And uh, Bill McGurn is right to be concerned based on what we've seen in Kenosha and Lancaster uh, and other communities that are not big urban centers, Heather. Absolutely. When the when government government has one primary duty, that's it. It's one primary duty, protect life, property, the ability of, of investors to invest, of businesses to to put their their life work, their life savings, their blood, sweat, and tears in something and believe that the next day they can come back and their store is not going to be looted and the glass shattered and their inventory plundered. That is what we have government for, so that private individuals can go on, build lives, create enterprise, create dreams and prosperity. Government has stopped doing that now. So we are moving into a feudal state uh, of, of vigilantes, people protecting their own property, very symbolic uh, during the the recent uh, Chicago riots on the Magnificent Mile, set off by nothing, just completely sheer plunder. Governor Lori Lightfoot raised the bridges, the drawbridges yeah. across the Chicago River. It's like we're back to moats and fortresses. And the distrust that's going to happen, people are going to go back again where you can't, you're fearful to go outside, to go to restaurants. Cities are already being destroyed by liberal politicians with these insanely over-restrictive lockdowns for no good reason based on no scientific evidence whatsoever. But the fear that is going to come when the police continue backing off and criminals further take control of the streets is going to put us back to an absolutely uh, primitive anarchic state. And the uh, the policy uh, the policies being pursued against that backdrop in big cities like in London, I mean, uh, like uh, by London Breed, who's the mayor of San Francisco, uh, the Abundant Birth Project, where San Francisco is going to give a basic implement uh, income supplement of a thousand dollars a month to Black and Pacific Islander women during their pregnancy. That's for the first six months postpartum with the goal of eventually providing $1,000 a month for up to two years of post-pregnancy for black and Pacific Islander women in San Francisco. Um, this is, uh, what, another extortion payment? Uh, this is something I've not heard about. This is exclusively for black and, 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 and Pacific Islander women? Yes. This is a government <laughs> Well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because we have racial preferences already. I mean, we have government giving out contracts and whatnot based on race and gender, which is, should be clearly unconstitutional. Um, but, yeah, I mean, everything again, everything today in our world, Dan, can be explained by one thing, uh, the response to black cultural breakdown and disparate impact. So that, that that's just another example of that. Yeah, there was this... Um... Uh, this moment, uh, going back to that town hall, a, that uh, that ABC town hall, President Trump, uh, where uh, this this question was asked uh, uh, about uh, President Trump's slogan by a black gentleman. Another question on this subject from Pastor Carl Day. He's from Philadelphia, voted for Jill Stein last time. How you doing, Mr. President? Good. 
Uh, you've coined the phrase, make America great again. Right. When has America been great for African Americans in the ghetto of America? Uh, and it's it's sort of akin to the Michelle Obama uh, announcement that she was finally proud of her country when her husband was nominated to be president of the United States. Yeah, and Governor Andrew Cuomo also said, when was America great? Um, you know, this country, there's no question, it has the most appalling history uh, of, of hypocrisy. It's, a, it's difficult to understand how we could have been blind for so long. Nevertheless, uh, the ideals in which the Black Lives Matter purports to fight, it's all lip service of equality, tolerance, equal justice, those are uniquely Western ideals. And today, America has done an absolute about-face. If you want your child to get into Harvard, do you want them to be black or white? If you don't know the answer to that, you've not been following what's going on uh, across the country with racial preferences in universities and every place else. Here's the answer. You want them to be black. Blacks have a four times greater chance of, of admission to Harvard than whites and Asians. In every selective college across the country, blacks are admitted with test scores and GPAs that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by whites and Asians. There isn't a single mainstream institution in this country, Dan, a bank, a corporation, a foundation, a museum, uh, a, a, an elite law firm that isn't twisting itself into knots to hire and promote as many blacks, Hispanics, and females as possible. Uh, the, the, the emphasis is exactly in the opposite direction from what we're being told. Well, and, and so, it, it, it's, look, it, Shelby Steele, I think, is um, one of the great commentators on this topic, saying, you know, uh, basically the elites in society and those that control the institutions you're, uh, you're uh, uh, relaying uh, have lost their moral authority, or they think they do. So things like meritocracy are, 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 or meritocratic, a meritocratic approach, that's part of the patriarchy. Those are illegitimate things. And I guess my question to you is, if you lose your moral authority, then don't you lose your society? We have to be able to distinguish right from wrong. We cannot be nihilistic. There are differences in skills. There are differences in accomplishments. Bourgeois values are the key to everything, and we are now undermining them. We've had seen the attack on bourgeois values with African American History Museum on, at the Smithsonian on the Mall, publishing a broadside about what white values are that are uniquely oppressive. These are allegedly white the inference being that to be black means to be late all the time and not believe in personal responsibility and hard work. This was not written by somebody from the Ku Klux Klan, one has to assume, and yet it is a complete, would seem to be a complete validation of the worst stereotypes we could come up with, but this is now being embraced as a form of black power. So we have simple keys to success. They are not race-based. It is, as you say, nihilistic. It is, as you say, the end of civilization to start making double standards, to destroy meritocracy, to deny the possibility of achievement, of excellence, of the fact that there is a, you actually have to know something to do Alzheimer's research. Our federal science agencies now are basing their own funding based on race and gender, not on scientific merit. Our greatest thinkers are being trashed in the name of racial justice for no good reason whatsoever. 
She is Heather McDonald, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal and the New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show, and uh, it seems as if the D.C. press corps' hysteria machine is running out of juice. I mean, it's it's one thing to suggest that uh, public enemy number one with respect to covid spread is a is a Trump biker rally in Sturgis or uh, people, Trump supporters rushing across the tarmac at a hangar uh, to, to meet Trump at a hangar in Nevada. It's another thing to declare war on restaurants in general. Uh, you can maybe get half the country or about half the country to buy the uh, Trump rallies are the super spreader events, whereas, uh, you know, general rioting is not. But uh, when you just attack restaurants generally as the uh, scapegoat for the spread, uh, I think you're going to have a tougher case to make. And it seems that maybe some of our public health panjan drums are losing their standing among wide swaths of the public. For more on this, uh, he's written on it. We're pleased to be joined again by Jeffrey Tucker, the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research and the author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back. He's also the man who brought us the origins of the social distancing lockdown policy, which, of course, was a high school girls science experiment. Not kidding. Jeffrey Tucker, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to talk about this uh, this case in particular because it really points to the absurdity of the kind of information we're getting day to day on the virus and how non-credible it is, but uh, the media reports all this nonsense uh, with no incredulity whatsoever. Well, and, and so uh, as it pertains to bars and restaurants, uh, you uh, document in your piece over at uh, AIER.org, some of the headlines, you know, uh, the uh, study finds bad news for bar and restaurant goers, uh, page, coronavirus patients twice as likely to have eaten in restaurants before getting ill and so on and so forth. These these restaurants and bars got to go. Yeah, yeah. So it's very easy to construct these headlines. It's, you know, and ba- basically the message is you go out to eat, you're going to get the virus and you're probably going to die, you know, and so that's an easy <laughs> headline to write. And you know, I'm, I, I just decided to look at the actual study behind it. And once you examine the, the study, it's like amazing that it was ever uh, published in the first place. And I'm happy to go through uh, all the problems with it, but the, the entire study is a, a complete absurdity, internally contradictory, does not say what they claim to say. In fact, it says a lot of other things. And I'm happy to kind of spell out why, actually. Yeah, yeah, but this is a CDC study you're referencing. Yeah, please uh, yeah. Ex- explain uh, the, the, the details that are belied by the top line. Right. So one of the things is that the, uh, the, the study has 25 authors, <laughs> which means that no one person has to take any responsibility for it. And John Ioannidis <laughs> back in 1995 showed this is a 
uh, one of nine signs of, of uh, fake science, that it has too many co-authors so that nobody takes any responsibility for the results. So I began to look at it. What they did was they found people who had, uh, who had gone in to get tested for the uh, COVID-19, and they found uh, 150 people who were declared positive and 150 people who were declared negative. And uh, they waited two weeks after the test and asked these people, all of whom were aware of whether they were tested positive or negative, uh, what kind of activities, life activities they had engaged in to see if they could find something that was statistically significant. Now, uh, before I explain that, uh, let me just say that there's been a report uh, from the New York Times that you know, the, the testing itself, which, which uses, uh, which uses uh, PCR testing used not for diagnostics but for research, um, is is very unstable. So it it doesn't tell you if you have it or if you don't. What it does is it gives you a range of probabilities, which is really sensitive to the cycle rate. And these things are all set too high. So uh, one report from the New York Times is that in Massachusetts, 90% of the positive cases are false positive. So you can't even know that for sure. Nonetheless, they did uh, uh, ask these people questions about the kind of life activities they gave, engaged in two weeks ahead of taking the the, the, their test, and they asked a series of things. Did you go shopping? Do you wear masks? Um, did you go to um, a sporting event? Uh, you know, have you uh, been in large parties and crowded parties at your home? Um, and, and, and a series of other questions like that, about a total of nine uh, possible life activities. And in none of these cases did they find that there was any statistically, measurably statistically significant relationship between the life activities and, ca and contracting uh, corona, or at least being tested positive for corona. Uh, let, so let, let, let me just hold yeah. it there. That one of the things they found, there's a couple other things they found and what they didn't find, and I just want to pick it up right there. Uh, more with Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research and author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back. More with Jeffrey Tucker right after this. Welcome back to the program. We're talking with Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research and author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back, The uh, War on Restaurants. The CDC, uh, well, a specious CDC study has uh, fomented is what we were discussing. And, uh, and Jeff, just pick it up uh, where we left off before the break about uh, the takeaways from the CDC study that you analyzed. Right, right. right. So they asked all these questions of, you know, did you wear a mask? Did you go to church? Did you ride on public transit? Did you go to a house party? Did you go to the gym? Did you go to the office? Did you go to the hair salon? Did you go shopping? And in none of these cases, whether you answered yes or no, was there any measurable difference between those people tested positive and those people who tested negative? So you might think that the headline of the story would be, don't worry about the gym, don't worry about the office, your hair salon's not giving you COVID, you can go shopping, don't worry about going to church, don't worry about public transit, and don't wear a mask because it's not making any difference. So that was actually one plausible headline. Those are many plausible headlines you could have gotten out of the story. Instead, 
what they did find was a small statistically significant relationship uh, between people who went to restaurants and those who contracted uh, uh, COVID. And so as a result, uh, the nation's press blew up and there were 10,000 headlines, you know, everybody's getting COVID from restaurants, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out as you get to the end of the article, the authors just in passing mention that the question, the questioners never asked the participants in the study whether or not they had eaten indoors or outdoors. Now, that's hugely important because these days most dining is, takes place outdoors, and, uh, and, and a positive uh, a test relationship would have no impact, for example, on whether or not you need to enhance ventilation in restaurants or anything like that. So they didn't even ask whether you're indoors or outdoors. That's a hugely important matter. If you're going to claim restaurants give you COVID, you know, you better solve that one. But I don't know, the people who did the research uh, forgot to answer that? I don't know. So which completely invalidates the conclusion, which is that if, you, if you're running a restaurant, you better add all kind of new ventilation and get the COVID out of there and everything. That, they actually concluded that. And then, appallingly, they also concluded this shows that everybody who's in a restaurant needs to wear a mask. Okay, their own study, if, if you believe it, I don't believe any of this uh, study. I think the whole thing is ridiculous. Um, their own study shows that masks don't make any difference whether you contract COVID or not. So they contradict themselves. So this is a completely bogus piece of science, all based on a, a crazy mix-up between cause and effect. Um, there's another funny failing of the study that the authors mentioned just right at the end, which is that it could be that people were influenced by the results of their own tests. So, and it goes a little bit like this. Um, if you get COVID, one of the things people sometimes ask themselves, I think stupidly, but they often do, where did I get this thing? And if they're thinking about their life activities over the previous 30 days, people who are tested positive might say, I bet we got it at that restaurant we went to, right? Because that's kind of an unusual life activity. It's something you remember, and people have this slightly stupid way of, of contract tracing themselves. <laughs> right. So they would definitely biased towards blaming the restaurant. In other words, scapegoating the restaurant. So that's all the study really did was document the fact that some people scapegoat restaurants for the fact that they had tested positive. And by the way, not a single person who tested positive in here uh, uh, died. And it's not even clear whether they even had any symptoms. So the whole thing is preposterous, and yet it was used as this propaganda organ to go after restaurants as if they haven't suffered enough. Well, well, well right, and, and, and look to be uh, continuing to suffer, at least in uh, places that are going to experience winter, uh, into the season change. I mean, with the slow walking of reopening in New York, sort of the same situation in Chicago, Philadelphia, uh, I, 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 I mean, uh, the uh, you, what, what are these cities going to do and these mayors and governors going to do, given their public pronouncements about their heroes saving lives uh, oh. I, 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 when you're all allowing restaurants only to operate at 25 or 50 percent capacity, which is just a sort of a slow motion going out of business uh, model? Oh, that's exactly right. The carnage is unbelievable. The latest uh, data on uh, 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 restaurant closures is absolutely shocking. The governments around the country have destroyed an entire industry, actually destroyed many industries. We at American Institute for Economic Research are working right now on an empirical study to examine this. And I tell you, it is not pretty 
uh, going to walk into the morgue of business failures over the last six months. 60% of the people who closed or were forced closed will never open again. And it really, it's, it's unjust. It's evil. Let me give you a slight um, case of, of a counterfactual here. Um, Atlanta it, it provides an interesting case. The, the, the governor of Georgia got kind of fed up with the lockdowns. He's right. Yeah. He said, all right, everybody, stop this crap. So, uh, so uh, he overrode the, the mayor of Atlanta, who was a little bit of a lockdowner herself, and he said, nope, you can't lock down business. Well, guess what's happened in Atlanta? Everybody's just forgotten everything, blown it off. They're all exhausted from lockdown. They're tired of fear. Atlanta's kind of a hip happening town. Now the place is functioning uh, at almost complete normalcy. The bars are packed. The restaurants are packed. The nightlife is continuing, and people are making money again. Uh, the bars and restaurants are staying open all night to hiring new employees because people are desperate to get out and live normal lives. So Atlanta is like a good old-fashioned American city right now, and that could be Chicago, that could be New York, but it's not because of, because of the rotten political systems of these cities. Well, it's re- that's really interesting about Atlanta because I recall Brian Kemp, the governor there of Georgia, being described as engaging in human experimentation when he uh, did not go along with the uh, lockdown orthodoxy, and he was being decried by, I, I know, my hometown mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, mm-hmm. so you're suggesting, go, the last thing we want to do is be like Georgia, really. Oh, well, Georgia um, b- 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 cared about human rights, and they cared about, about freedom, and they cared about Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the American way of life. So God bless uh, uh, Kemp. He never should have shut down, by the way. I think he should be held accountable for that. But nonetheless, nonetheless, he did open it up for anybody else, even against Trump's objection. So God bless him. Well, now I have Georgia on my mind, to borrow a phrase. <laughs> Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. back to the show a little bit later on i want to follow up on the conversation we just had with jeffrey tucker from aier uh about a a particular junk science study promulgated by cdc and talk a little bit about crc at the cdc some uh, investigative work our friend from the manhattan institute uh, christopher rufo uh, did um, talk a little bit more about masks and the cdc a little bit later in the show but uh, i got to tell you uh, from the fertile minds of sarcastic libertarians over at Reason Magazine, the best political parody ad I've ever seen and heard. And you got to see it. Uh, visit at Dan Prof Show to uh, to see it. I tweeted it out. 
to fully appreciate it because it's as well produced as it is well written. It's not easy to sum up 60 years of political ads in 90 seconds, but that's exactly what the creative team over at Reason Magazine did. And this isn't even Remy who does great parody videos. This was a collaboration from Reason. This election, your choice couldn't be more important. Our candidate is in flattering lighting and full bright color. Their candidate is in grainy high contrast black and white. Spotted through a telephoto lens from behind a bush. Coming back from God only knows where. Our guy points at the horizon and holds a baby. Their guy doesn't have a baby. Their guy has a golf club. The voiceover for our guy is calm, measured, bright. Their guy gets the lower register. And sometimes we slow our guy has clean headlines and the beautiful lens flare America needs. Here's a scary graph over a photo of their guy awkwardly laughing. Snap zoom. Do you want a snap zoom like that in office? Here's a photo of our guy saluting military veterans. Jump cuts, flashes, static, aggressive colors. You can't trust a guy with graphics like this. Our guy gets stock footage of sunrises and an American flag. Their guy's flag is upside down and on fire. Intercut with overdue bills, war, and a crying baby. Our guy gets doctor and astronauts and stimulus checks flatline an eagle hurricane the statue of liberty crime scene tape ronald reagan ronald reagan a girl running in a wheat field to escape a dangerous sexual predator building atomic bomb this election the choice is yours their guy or our guy inspiring slogan <laughs> i mean it really is good uh that is just so tightly written and produced Great stuff from Reason Magazine. Uh, don't always agree with the libertarian perspective on things, but uh, can always appreciate the sort of parody coming from that uh, snarky libertarian perspective. Genius, genius stuff. You do have to check it out. Uh, coming up a little bit later in the show, we'll be uh, talking to our friend James Copeland, speaking of the Manhattan Institute, as I was before, about his new book, The Unelecteds. So you want to stay tuned for that as well. Back with more Dan Prop Show. This is the Dan Prop Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Our uh, friend James Copeland over at the Manhattan Institute has a book out uh, just released last week, The Unelected, How an Unaccountable Elite is Governing America. Talk a lot about the elite. It's usually in the context of political ruling class. And by that, we mean these elected officials, these imperious elected officials that we've seen all too much of over the last six months. But uh, what Copeland is writing about is that fourth branch of government not contemplated by the Constitution, but given life to by those officials who were contemplated in the Constitution, and that's the bureaucracy, unelected bureaucracy. 1.3 million private lawyers 
who regulate our lives through lawsuits. They fill 50 state capitals and more than 89,000 municipal governments, often exerting implicit authority over people who live far beyond their jurisdictions. For quick summary on the cadre of elites Copeland is referencing, for more on his book and the topic, we're pleased to be joined by James Copeland, senior fellow with and director of legal policy for the Manhattan Institute. The book, again, The Unelected, How an Unaccountable Elite is Governing America. James, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, this is a, a little bit, um, it seems to be like the death of Philip Howard's death of common sense. Harvey Silvergate's Five Felonies a Day meets the actual people behind those two books. Exactly. And these folks have looked at aspects of the problem. So Harvey Silverglade certainly looked at the criminal law aspect, and Philip Howard's looked at a lot of the litigation aspects here. And this book really tries to weave these strands together and these themes together, because the administrative state that you allude to, the two million federal employees that are given vast rulemaking authority and lots of enforcement authority by Congress that's largely abdicated its role. And then it is also these private attorneys who can file lawsuits on theories that we haven't voted on. And it's also these state and local officials who people vote on, but but nobody in Chicago voted for the people in New York, and certainly the people in Wyoming and Arizona didn't vote on the people there in Chicago. So if these local officials are able to file lawsuits or use their pension funds to try to, to influence corporations or what have you, that's another layer of government that we aren't voting on with our national elections. The elections matter. But there's a lot going on with our government that is independent of these elections, and it's, it's something that's deeply troubling to me as someone who cares about public accountability that's supposed to be embedded in our constitutional structure. Yeah, and it seems that we have, you know, we don't see many of these people, but we've seen examples of the culture that has been given rise to across federal government. So, for example, the IRS abuse scandal under the Obama administration, and we saw how imperious the former head of the IRS was in testimony before Congress. We've seen the uh, seeming lack of accountability attached to senior leadership at the FBI and perhaps the CIA and other agencies during the whole Russian collusion melodrama. But it's hard for people sometimes, I think, to contemplate that this is happening in the Department of Agriculture and the Treasury Department and every other cabinet level agency as well as sub-agency, that culture that you see playing out in the high-profile instances exists in the everyday business of these government enterprises. Right. I mean, those examples you brought up are are sort of the risk for partisanship and affecting the party politics through these agencies. And that is a real risk when we have such a multiplication of laws. There's just vast enforcement discretion embedded in the agencies. But it goes even further than that, because a lot of these decisions are effectively punted by the Congress to these agencies in the first instance. So we have 300,000 estimated federal crimes. Nobody can really count them all. Certainly an ordinary businessman or an ordinary family farmer is not going to be able to comply with all these rules. So there's vast enforcement discretion. But the other critical point that I I bring out in the book is that 98% of these federal crimes never were voted on by Congress. So Congress just sort of delegates vast authority to these officials. And in ways that are outside the sort of partisan political game, we see time and again, the officials making the decisions are doing so in a way sometimes without understanding, even if they're well-intentioned and not trying to play partisan politics. uh, William Vogeli in um, Claremont Review of Books has a good piece about uh, how to assess the response to coronavirus by the Trump administration, the federal government. It starts from violating the premise that so many people start from when they think about the federal government's response. What's the standard of analysis? And the false premise is that we have some sort of omnicompetent government authority. 
when we don't have an omnicompetent government authority. And there's all sorts of complications with knowing, choosing and actually implementing, which are sort of the three categories of, of response. Imperfect information, fragmented information. The choice is not always easy because all of the apparatuses of government don't move in synchronicity with one another. And then, you know, the implementation is in part the same problem. It seems to me that this is something that we have to disabuse people of, too. It's the old um, Ambrose Spears line that politics is where a private vice becomes public virtue. You know, a government is where people who were in private life in one minute now become experts on everything and uh, infallible technocrats as soon as they enter the halls of some government agency. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's important to just realize that, that there are constraints on our ability to process information and our ability to execute. And, and we saw this very much so in, in the virus response. And we see it time and again with the government. I mean, inevitably, the political incentives make government officials risk averse about the things they can't control. And so they make them less likely to allow things to happen. And we see, you know, this is a fun of fundamental problems with the FDA. They're more worried about error on the one end, but then they slow things down on the other end and end up, it ends up costing lots and lots of lives because they, what we don't see is what might have been able to be brought out without such onerous regulations. And we're getting a picture of that now, right? I mean, we are rushing through very aggressively in vaccine development for this virus, and we've got nine different possibilities going through what's phase three testing of the FDA process. And, and listen, it's important that we have uh, safe and effective drugs out on the marketplace. But the rapid speed at which this is being done highlights, I think, how slow it is in the ordinary case to bring products to market under these regulatory regimes. And a lot of lives in the ordinary case are lost by this, both because of the delay and because of the enormous cost that, that there is to bring a product to market, which means that a lot of, of uh, potential life-saving drugs and devices are kept off the market before they ever even get into this testing process just because the process is so expensive that more niche products for more niche conditions just aren't economically viable due to our regulatory structure. So, so the public health authorities used to be oriented around stopping germs. Now they're more oriented around stopping those who develop treatments to, 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 to kill the germs, and, and that's part of our problem. And so uh, from the, you know, thinking about the pandemic responses, since this has uh, fixated so much public attention on the federal government, does there seem to you a roadmap that's emerging for how to address some of the problems of the unelected that you're describing? Uh, you mentioned the FDA and the CDC and the testing back in February and how that was bungled being one example. Are there, are there other examples you think that are particularly prominent? I, mean, I think all through the book, I, I come up with examples of how ordinary people get just, just entrapped by this. So the doctor who lost his medical license for speaking truthfully uh, ultimately was vindicated in lit lit indirectly in litigation that found, you know, this is protected by the First Amendment free speech. But by that time, he'd lost his license, lost his, his money, and ultimately killed himself. So it didn't do him any good. Or, or the woman who tried to renovate a hotel in California was sued in shakedown litigation by, by disability lawyers while she was renovating this and trying to do a, a friend a favor. She ultimately won her lawsuit, but it cost her so much to defend it, she didn't get that money back, and she ended up having to abandon her project. So, so people get wrapped up in in this, uh, in, in all sorts of profound ways, um, and these are rules that, that 
nobody voted on. So I do, in Chapter 14 of the book, which I call Restoring the Republic, sort of sketch out at a basic level some of the paths we could take back. I mean, we're not going to get back to our, our minimalist government that we had in, in the, the 1780s. That's not going to happen. Um, and, you know, in some cases, that's for the best. In other cases, I wish we would get more back that way. But, but it's not going to happen. But we can certainly uh, have the Supreme Court do its job a little better and not allow these agencies such wide berth uh, to basically uh, write the rules and enforce the rules and interpret the rules so that there's really no check on their authority. And Congress can certainly step in there as well and say, listen, I mean, we, we don't have the capacity to add 61,000 pages of new laws and regulations the way the Trump administration in year one with a deregulatory agenda had to add 61,000 pages to the Federal Register, which was, in fact, the lowest number of new pages since 1993. Congress isn't going to be able to do that legislatively, but they could still retain the authority to vote on anything that creates, for instance, a new crime, rather than letting the the federal bureaucrats uh, write 98% of the crimes and Congress never checks over their shoulder. He is James Copeland, senior fellow with, the, with and director of legal policy for the Manhattan Institute. The book, The Unelected, How an Unaccountable Elite is Governing America. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, building off our conversation with James Copeland about the unelecteds, I want to introduce you to a school superintendent in suburban Chicago named Tammy Prentice. She's a superintendent of a high school district in a very wealthy enclave of suburban Chicago. Uh, and um, she had a particular recommendation for parents on a Zoom presentation, uh, District 86, uh, this uh, school district in suburban Chicago, not doing in-person instruction, mm-hmm. not doing in-person instruction like so many schools. And just uh, for backdrop, before we hear what she's recommending parents do to you know, help us get back to in-person learning, just a data point, since I know the uh, lockdown artists of the left claim to be men and women of science and data. According to uh, the most recent CDC data on the matter 300 this is as of september 2nd 360 americans under the age of 24 have died from covid-19 360 americans under the age of 24 as of september 2nd there are more than 103 million americans under the age of 24 360 have died from covid-19 which means that an individual under the age of 24 is much more likely to die from a lightning strike than COVID-19. So just uh, consider that data point when you contemplate uh, in-person education in K through 12 or on a college campus, when you read stories about uh, governors like Pritzker in Illinois, since we're on the topic, uh, canceling false sports, canceling false sports, saying, I'm not willing to sacrifice people's lives or their health, neither the children nor their parents, who would be affected also 
adding that uh, for those states who are doing high school football, like all of the other states in the Midwest, including states uh, lorded over by governors, I, you wouldn't exactly call conservatives like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan or Tony Evers in Wisconsin. If they've, de- if they've decided to endanger children in those states, that's their decision, said Pritzker. Well, uh, the Big Ten decided to endanger young people in all of those states, didn't they, this morning by announcing they would be resuming football, reversing course. Leaves Pritzker in a particularly precarious position as the state of Minnesota after the Big Ten's announcement reversed course on fall sports at the K-12 through level, too. We'll see what... Uh, the last holdout here in the Midwest Pritzker decides to do, but that gives you the mentality and you be, uh, you make the call yourself in terms of whether the data, the science and the data justify that approach. So back to uh, the school district in wealthy Hinsdale, Illinois, suburban Chicago and the superintendent there, Tammy Prentice, one of the unelecteds. We'll get, to, we've talked about the electeds, Getting back to the Copeland formulation, the unelected school superintendent. This last piece, um, we talked a little bit the last time that it's important for all of us to be in partnership and modeling for young adults. We are all sad and disappointed to not be in school, but we want to return in a safe measure and we want to keep that continuity of instruction going. I cannot imagine um, having students be ping pong or let alone staff in one day, gone for two weeks in one day. One way that the community can help me um, I receive emails, I receive, we have a tip line that sometimes people are starting to use um, and basically rat out their bad acting parent neighbor. And so, um, a, for example, that was just brought to my attention, apparently, and parents, if you're listening, please refrain from hosting all those homecoming parties that are allegedly out there. Students are talking about it to their teachers on the... Rat out your bad acting parent neighbor. One way you can help us get back to in-person learning is advance the snitch culture. We post, we put up a hotline so you can rat out your neighbor. Bad acting would be, for example, as she mentioned, uh, hosting a homecoming party for your kid and their friends. Mm-hmm. What did uh, Brown University epidemiologist Andrew Brostrom, what did he find of the uh, 26,000 COVID cases on college campuses as, uh, as of last week? Zero hospitalizations. The uh, much publicized deaths of teachers, uh, a handful of deaths of teachers, and that's a sad occurrence. Uh, But it was suggested without evidence that it was connected to getting COVID in the classroom, and there's no evidence to support that. And this is not to say that the environment is risk-free, because no environment is on this mortal coil. Emphasis on mortal. But again, the response in the context of the evidence and the culture that we're supposed to create in order to enjoy those things that we're constitutionally guaranteed or that we paid for like government schools, the school superintendent snitch on your bad acting parent neighbor that you really want an East German uh, lives of others culture. This is an area of uh, generally wealthy people, very successful people, bad actors, though, because if you're not folded into the lockdown orthodoxy, which is left, if you are not ready to serve as a sentinel of the state, bad actor need to be ratted out. And then what happens? 
Your kid is uh, punished in some material way, expelled from school. You're forced to quarantine. You're whisked off to some black site like they're doing in Quebec City. We're going to look back at this time. (laughs) I think I've said this before, but it just persists. And it's one thing at the height of the outbreak and the, uh, the nadir of knowledge about the virus, so the early spring. It's another thing as we stand here today in mid-September. The tulip mania is not, in a, even though I've made the comparison, it's not uh, really on point. Because that was just you know, overinflating the value of a commodity. This uh, shared delusion among wide swaths of the population, this uh, shared psychosis, You're going to look back on this. People are going to look back on this and say not. Oh, I mean, some will because they're so deluded and they will persist in their self-delusion rather than live a uh, self-actualized life. Oh, I did my part. I followed orders. We did what we could. We conquered this. Most people, I think, offering honest assessment, particularly as we stand here today with all these European countries and schools reopened and teachers teaching, and there are many in this country too, but I'm talking about in lockdown states versus generally free states, rational states, the lockdown states, some of the big ones that feature the biggest cities in America. Look back on this and say, what an unbelievable expression of cowardice, perhaps the greatest expression of cowardice in the face of barbarism and empty sentimentality in the history of the West. I really believe that. It's such a sad occurrence. And I don't think I'm overstating the case when you're being lectured to by some overpaid education apparatchik to snitch on your neighbor, set your neighbor up for some sort or their children up for some sort of punishment for the crime of hosting a homecoming event for their kids and their kids' friends. These are the depths to which we have sunk in so many places in America, particularly those governed by Marxists. This is Dan Proctor. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. President Trump getting some uh, begrudging plaudits, uh, even on the pages of the New York Times editorials, uh, the, the editorial page of the New York Times, I should say. Uh, it's a little disconcerted just because, you know, reading Tom Friedman, uh, it requires uh, uh, suspending about half of your IQ points. Tom Friedman uh, has graduated from Flintstones metaphors to explain uh, geopolitical occurrences to uh, soap opera analogies. Here, uh, Friedman's explanation of the Normalization agreement signed Tuesday between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Israel and Bahrain. Uh, It's as if Jared Kushner was a lawyer who set out to arrange a divorce between Mrs. Israel and Mr. Palestine. 
In the process, though, Mr. Kushner discovered that Mrs. Israel and Mr. Palestine were so incompatible that they couldn't even sit in a room together. But along the way, Mr. Kushner discovered something intriguing. Mr. Mrs. Israel was having an affair with Mr. Emirates, who was fleeing an abusive relationship with Miss Iran. So Mr. Kushner stopped trying to arrange a divorce between Mr. Palestine, Palestine and Mrs. Israel and sees instead on the mutual interests of Mrs. Israel and Mr. Emirates to marry, not to mention the self-interest of President Trump to serve as the justice of the peace who would officiate on the White House lawn in the midst of a presidential campaign. To uh, bring this up to adult standards in terms of a discussion of these developments in the Middle East, we're pleased to be joined by Jed Babin, who you won't see on the pages of the New York Times editorial page, uh, won't see in the columns uh, there. Uh, he's banned like Tom Cotton, I'm sure, from the New York Times uh, editorial page. Jed Babin, former United States Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, contributor to Washington Times and the American Spectator. Uh, Jed, uh, did you were you able to follow Tom Friedman or do you need me to repeat that? No, uh, please don't. And you know, it's just not worth reading or repeating or anything. You know, Tom Friedman is <clears throat> he's a perfect example of why The New York Times is just written for people who live in New York City and you know, people who live in San Francisco. Nobody else can read it. It's just it's, it's just a waste of time, for God's sake. Uh, anyway, I know, I know, but you know, I, I just need to, I, I need for my own sort of uh, catharsis, I need to uh, make sure that other people recognize what uh, what we recognize. But uh, give us the adult version of the developments in the Middle East between Israel, UAE, and uh, Bahrain. Well, without exaggerating, let me just say that this is the most significant development in the Middle East since Israel came into being in 1948. Uh, and the it, the Arab nations at that point, as soon as Israel came into being, uh, attacked and were defeated eventually. Uh, so this is a major realignment, a potential for a major realignment, and it all has to be credited to President Trump. As much as the Times and the Washington Post will you know scream about how he's an ignorant idiot, uh, the fact is he's done an enormously good job in trying to bring much greater progress. Uh, towards the Middle East peace than has ever been done before. You know, I can say that without hesitation, because if you look at what's going on right now between Israel and um, individually the UAE and Bahrain, I mean, these two Sunni nations are looking at the Shiite nation of Iran, and it's scaring the liver out of them. And they are much, much more scared of Iran than they are of making peace with Israel. And that is what Mr. Trump has taken advantage of. And that is what is, you know, again, potentially the greatest breakthrough in in peace uh, in the Middle East, uh, at least since Israel's founding. And uh, it seems to me that what uh, the Trump administration has done, Secretary Pompeo, of course, given credit for this as well, is is uh, is do something asymmetrical rather than just trying to pound, pound, pound a two state solution, trying to get Israel and Palestine to the table essentially um, eliminate Palestine, the, the Palestinian veto in the region by making these side deals with uh, more reasonable uh, uh, Arab nations. Yeah, I mean, I, I go a step further, I think, by the peace plan uh, that Mr. Trump offered the Palestinians, and of course they rejected. And by this initiative, I think the Palestinians are proved to be irrelevant to Middle Eastern peace. I mean, they're an obstacle. They're not a peace partner in any respect. And, you know, they've made their entire being uh, dependent upon the destruction of Israel. There's no compromise from them in any way, manner, or form. So the Palestinians are being left behind. They're just over. 
they're just not even, again, relevant to whatever goes on in the Middle East. Uh, I, I want to pick up this discussion when we come back and just, uh, you know, go back uh, just a, a little a little institutional memory here and what uh, the deep thinkers and the foreign policy establishment thought would happen in the Middle East when uh, Trump moved the embassy from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And then, of course, what actually has come to pass, in addition to having the noble discussion with respect to President Trump's and his administration's accomplishments in the Middle East. More with Jed Babin, former United States Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, contributor to the Washington Times and American Spectator, right after this. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Jed Babin, former United States Deputy Undersecretary of Defense and contributor to the Washington Times and the American Spectator about the uh, really substantial developments in the Middle East uh, in terms of uh, the advancement of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, uh, starting with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. And before we get to you know where this else, where else this might go, notably Saudi Arabia, uh, I wanted to get just your reaction to what uh, so many of those who are the uh, enlightened thinkers that are profiled on the cable news shows had to say about Trump moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and how, as I recall, that was unnecessarily provocative. That was going to destabilize the region. That was an act of war, essentially. And this is the recklessness that they feared when Trump was elected. It didn't quite turn out that way. Well, no, not even close. Trump's move again, was pointed towards the strengthening of Israel, the irrelevance of the Palestinians, and to prove that to the surrounding Arab nations. You know, the Arab nations have used the Palestinians as a political tool since about, oh, 1949. And if you go back in history a little bit, you will see the uh, then current foreign minister of Syria in 1949 said, we told the so-called Palestinians that they had to leave their homes and come out. Now we're telling them to go back. And in the meantime, we're ignoring their, you know, their health, safety, and, and well-being. And you know, that's literally the case. I mean, the Palestinians who uh, fled the fighting in the Israeli War of Independence and left for other reasons, mainly left because they were told by the leaders of nations such as Syria. And in fact, they were, quite frankly, not made refugees by Israel or the Israeli government. And so the opportunity that, that persists uh, to build on what has already been accomplished is to now fold in other countries that have uh, reason sure. to fear Iran, Iranian hegemony like Kuwait and ultimately the big one, Saudi Arabia. Exactly. I mean, this is, this is the big deal. I mean, the Sunni Arabs split from the Shiite Arabs and Persians. Can't go all the way to the year 632 when Islam's prophet Muhammad died, and they split between them at that point, and they have been at war with each other pretty much ever since. Yes, there have been periods where they have lived in peace with each other, but those have not lasted terribly long. And the people in Bahrain and the UAE, their leaders, and Sudan and soon Oman and Kuwait, are all realizing that they should be a lot more fearful of what Iran is going to do to them than whatever theoretical threat that Israel poses to their religion. So they're coming around. The big question is Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned. 
The Saudis have their own form of radical Islam, Wahhabism, as the foundation of their religion and society and regime. So they're going to have to come around a long way. But they are ultimately realists. They have to be. So they're going to see what's going on. They themselves have been the subject of Iranian aggression, not just through Yemen and the attacks by the Shiites in Yemen, the Houthi tribe uh, on Israel, rather uh, Saudi's oil facilities. You know, they have really seen what the danger is, and they know the value of the American president's presence in Saudi Arabia. And they see the chance that Mr. Trump is going to lose the election. And that's what they're waiting for. This nation such as Saudi Arabia, which have not yet signed on to this agreement or these agreements with Israel, are waiting to see what happens in November because they know bloody well that if Biden is elected, all of this goes away and that Biden will reinstitute relationship with Iran and join in the Obama nuclear weapons deal with Iran again. And all of the progress that Mr. Trump has made in the Middle East will be washed away in a, in, in a minute. And the other development uh, under the heading of advancing peace is uh, in Kosovo, between uh, Kosovo and Serbia. Uh, here again, right. the United States inter- instrumental in brokering uh, those talks and, and that advancement towards lasting peace. Right. And between the Bahrain deal and the rather the UAE deal and the Kosovo-Serbia deal, Mr. Trump has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize twice. And you know what? I'll bet you a good cigar that he doesn't get it because the Nobel. <laughs> Not taking Nobel, that bet. Well, you know, <laughs> you're a wise man. Uh, you know, the basic point is that the Nobel Committee is so political and so hardcore left wing that they will not give Trump that prize unless they feel like they have absolutely no choice. Well, sure. And I mean, it's it's a delicious juxtaposition, isn't it? Uh, Barack Obama getting the Nobel Peace Prize uh, based on potential. And then he goes off and <laughs> warmongers and uh, Trump <laughs> won't get the, the, the Peace Prize based on actual work product because they don't like him personally. They don't like his personal his politics. Personally, it really says a lot about the quality of that honorific, doesn't it? I mean, also the fact that Yasser Arafat is also a Nobel Peace Prize recipient. So, you know, I, I don't know how much value to put in that award anyway. Well, I don't either. It's a political award. And, you know, as you point out, there have been people who've gotten that award you know, like Yasser Arafat, the uh, late and unlamented Palestinian leader, uh, Deng Xiaoping, one of the previous uh, Chinese dictators. I mean, you don't get the Nobel Peace Prize by making peace. And when Obama got it in 2009, he'd just been elected. He'd yeah. not done a doggone thing. Yeah. So it's just it's it's kind of comical. Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind getting the prize. I mean, it comes with like a million bucks. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. But other than other than that, <laughs> Trump doesn't need the money. And, uh, you know, he can he can laugh it off easily. Uh, what about uh, the uh, developments in Afghanistan? It's not just uh, troop drawdowns. It's also, again, trying to broker a lasting peace there. The, I know this is very early stages, but the the uh, optimism we should or should not have about talks between the Afghani government and the, and the Taliban. Well, there's no reason to be optimistic, and it's really not early stages. We have given up so much well, to yes. engineer. Yes. Yeah, we, we have, you know, not we've engaged in this and encouraged uh, in this uh, so-called peace process without demanding the most elemental thing that you would have, which is a ceasefire by the Taliban and by our forces as well. In the process of giving the Taliban back their, uh, their most treasured prize, which is the country of Afghanistan. I mean, we know, and anybody who has followed this for any period of time knows that within weeks, if not months, of our final troops leaving uh, the Afghanistan capital, uh, that it will be captured again by the Taliban and they will rule there 
for as long as uh, it takes until somebody throws them out again. Uh, it's it's a sham piece, and we're withdrawing with our tail between our legs, and there are some alternatives. Uh, what, what's your overall sort of grade mm-hmm. as we stand here 50 days before the election, your overall grade on President Trump and his, his uh so-called principled realist approach to foreign policy? I would give him like a B minus. I think he's made some pretty substantial mistakes, but I think the basic points are that he's made an awful lot of progress where it really counts. He is Jeb Babin, former United States Deputy Undersecretary of Defense and contributor to the Washington Times and the American Spectator. Jeb, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, turning our attention to Rust Belt culture. This is a story out of uh, Ohio that uh, went viral on Monday. Two local high school football players were suspended from their team for uh, violating a command that they do not do what they did. What did they do? On 9-11, before their football game, the two kids ran onto the field, one carrying a thin red line flag, the other a thin blue line flag, signifying fire and police. Seems appropriate, you know, before a football game on 9-11, a bit of a hat tip to first responders, fire and police. Uh, they were suspended nonetheless and um, uh, received a lot of support from the community and a lot of outrage over their suspension. For example, one uh, resident of Morrow, Ohio, with everything that's going on with the NFL and what they're doing, and they pull this, meaning the suspension on those kids. Another uh, local business owner, I'm proud of the boys. I don't see how someone could take this as political. Here's what Little Miami School District considered political. Brady Williams, the son of a policeman. Gerard Bentley, the son of a firefighter, running onto the field, as I said, before that 9-11 game holding the two flags. Uh, And uh, in terms of regrets about doing that, they don't even have a few. Here's uh, first Brady and then Jared. Listen, I don't care what my consequences are. As long as my message gets across, I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. I was all for it. Why? Because my dad is a firefighter. So not just honoring first responders on 9-11 before a football game in their community, also honoring their dads on top of it all. And this is political. It's remarkable in school districts, isn't everything that the school district does, the administrators and the teachers, and I mean, how many uh, examples are there of politicization in the classroom and in the school, on the school grounds? And this is what they deem political and thus worthy of suspension. Uh, The um, uh, mom of uh, Brady Williams, Kelly Williams, he's a little emotionally drained, but he'll come through the stronger the end. Definitely a character building time in his life. And it's definitely not something he'll ever forget. Uh, The school district uh, reinstated the boys, by the way. So they were suspended on Monday and because of the outcry reinstated on Tuesday, the school district said the boys could still be disciplined by their coach for insubordination, 
terms of saying, you know, we're going to run on the field with these flags. No, don't do that. They did it anyway. But uh, they will remain on the team. They're no longer suspended from the team. Well, it's nice to see uh, some exhibition of courage uh, from young people, even in the face of so much cowardice from adults. So, yeah, I I get it. You want to respect authority. But I think they were respecting authority by not following the uh, order of their coach and respecting authorities in the form of their dads, in the form of first responders in this country. This is Dan Proctor. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Alan Blinder is a uh, professor of economics at Princeton University. He's a lefty, but he has penned a piece in the Wall Street Journal about the COVID relief standoff, in which he says a failure to come to terms on a relief package would be catastrophic, especially for Americans who can least afford another catastrophe. The increased unemployment benefits in the CARES Act right now at the end of July, leaving millions of people struggling to make ends meet. Jobless people are ineligible for unemployment insurance are even worse shape. The truly poor, including millions of undocumented workers whose jobs disappeared, are barely hanging on. Well, it might be interesting for Professor Blinder to note that um, the number of job openings right now mirrors the number of job openings of December of 2019 pre-outbreak. Huh. We've also seen a 10 percent increase in the salaries of retail workers because of all the hiring by those, the Amazons and the Home Devos of the world. But but OK, here's where we really get to it. What the main concern of the left, like the good professor, state and local government budgets have been devastated by the double whammy of rising spending on the virus and collapsing tax revenue. AEI's estimate two hundred forty billion dollar range for this fiscal year alone. You had Governor Jelly Belly here, belly aching about it yesterday. States must balance their budgets. Without federal assistance, they will have to lay off workers. Many have started down that road. Public schools that would like to open, whether in person or online, also need help. Online is not open. Yet the Republican skinny package includes no money for the social safety net, no aid to state and local governments, and no stimulus checks. There's money for schools, but it's directly mainly to districts for reopened for in-person instruction. Do Senate Republicans care about any of this? Will they let their longstanding anti-government ideology blind them to the nation's plate, even when the politics point in the opposite direction? Question mark. To answer that question for us, we're pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, will you and your Senate Republican friends let your longstanding anti-government ideology blind you to the nation's plight? You know, it really is interesting. I mean, this whole debate about stimulus is really two sides where the Democrats are basically for giving more and more and more money to politicians and state governments and local governments because the Democrats are the party of government. And the Trump position is give the money. If we're going to do stimulus, give the money to the people. If we're going to give money for education, give it to the parents who have the kids and let them choose their schools. If we're going to give money to get people out, you know, give it directly to workers, either through a payment or, you know, I like the idea of a payroll tax. 
tax cut, why give it to the politicians? I don't understand how giving money to politicians stimulates the economy, but that is the priority of the Democrats. And meanwhile, one other quick thing, you mentioned the job market right now. Uh, look, we lost 20 million jobs. We got about 10 million to go to get back to any sense of normalcy. But did you know that there were 6 million job openings today in America? So there are a lot of people not getting back on the job. And part of the explanation for that is these high unemployment benefits that people are getting, even at $300 a week extra. That's an incentive for a lot of people to just stay away from their jobs. Yes, Steve, but Governor Pritzker has suggested a doomsday scenario. I want you to brace yourself in which if he doesn't get uh, a few billion dollars to to continue to prop up the House of Cards, that is Illinois finances, he may have to advance budget cuts as deep as 5% across every state agency. Are you serious? 5% cut? Can you imagine a, a household or a business having to cut their expenses by 5%? Oh, no. Geez, we all did that. Also, uh, he may have to lay off several state workers. Here's the interesting thing about this that you folks in Illinois might not get because you get your news from Illinois, but about half of the states have, guess what? They've already balanced their budgets. They already did it. So why is it Illinois can't balance their budget? Why can't New York balance its budget? Why can't New Jersey balance its budget? Even California, by the way, did balance its budget. California made cuts to deal with this. Illinois, it seems like they're incapable of balancing a budget by trimming expenditures as every other institution in America has done during this pandemic. Well, right. And places like New York and Chicago and Philadelphia have a problem coming. I mean, not to go full Game of Thrones on you, but winter is coming. You're not going to be able to even allow your restaurant to have their 25% capacity when all of the seating is outdoors or you're blocking off particular blocks of, that are entertainment zones, if you will. You know, the slow walking back to anything resembling a viable business model for these businesses in terms of government allowance means that the devastation you're describing is going to be deeper and more long lasting. So, you know, what's interesting is so many of these states have requirements, only, you know, one quarter filled for restaurants or one third filled and some allow even half full. Do these politicians ever talk to people who actually own restaurants and run restaurants? I mean, a restaurant is a business. A business can only stay in business if it can make a profit. How many restaurants do you think can make a profit when they're 30 percent capacity? There is no possible way these restaurants can make money that way. So they are hanging by a thread right now. And you're right, Dan, when the winter comes, you're you're going to see hundreds of thousands of little, mostly immigrant-run restaurants closing down because of these edicts by government. And I love what happened in Pennsylvania. District court decision. Yeah. down the governor there and said, you don't have the right to do this. I mean, these are governors, not dictators. But the importance of that being a federal decision of, of him ruling Governor Wolf's diktats unconstitutional And what's the posture of other Republicans at the state or the federal level in terms of trying to use that as a precedent to force the reopening elsewhere where you have arguably similar edicts that would be also similarly unconstitutional? Well, you know, that could apply to other states. I'm not I'm not a legal person, so I can't answer that. But I will tell you this as an economist. Look at the states that have the highest unemployment rate today. So we're talking about the state with the high. Anybody know what the state with the highest unemployment rate is? Massachusetts, 16. By the way, this is these are the July numbers. The August numbers will come out in about a week for the states. But in, in July, Massachusetts is what 16.3 percent. The second highest was New Jersey. The third highest was New York. The fourth highest was Connecticut. Illinois was something like number six or seven. You were at like 11.3 percent. And so there's a pattern here. 
states that shut down their businesses have high unemployment rates. And by the way, the other thing that's amazing about these statistics is the states that have the biggest lockdowns, uh, which, of course, were New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, they also had the highest death rates. Now, think about that, folks. If you are a defender of lockdowns, you've got to explain to me how it is that the states that have the strictest lockdowns also have the highest death rates, because this is where the debate is on coronavirus. It's really important because Scott Atlas, who's now the uh, one of the directors of health at the White House, is being savagely criticized yeah. by the health community. Because he's saying something that I wholly agree with. I think the, the evidence is clearly on his side that the way to combat coronavirus and keep people healthy is to protect the vulnerable. So if you do something to protect those people, you don't have to shut down the rest of the economy. But the left hates that idea and they want to protect, quote, everyone, which is why schools are closed, restaurants are closed. And it's caused total pandemonium. Well, no, we've had Dr. Atlas on the show a number of times, and, and that, that's exactly right. And by the way, he's hardly alone. I mean, John Ioannidis at Stanford and, and so many others yep. uh, that have argued the same thing. Obviously, you have the Swedish model that they did exactly what Atlas was describing, even though they admit they could have done a better job protecting the vulnerable yep. in nursing homes there. And we see what's happening in Sweden now relative to some of their Western European neighbors doing much better, both in terms of case fatality rate as well as in terms of uh, you know, the economic hit that they're taking much less than their Western European neighbors. So, no, I mean, it's of course, it's sensible. It, it, it's I, it, I, the only thing that saddens me is it took Trump so long to add somebody like Scott Atlas to the to the to the inner circle. They, oh, these wanted, these people should have been wanted, added a long time ago. He wanted somebody who has been along at every step of the turn. And that's, of course, Fauci, you know, who is, uh, you know, the media darling, even though everything he said for the last five months has been proven to be wrong. But uh, I think this is a really important point because we could reopen our economies in a much more strategic way that wouldn't cause, you know, 20 million people to lose their jobs. And here we are six months later. I mean, it's one thing to have shut down the economy six months ago when we didn't know that much about coronavirus. We do know a lot about it now. And we do know who's vulnerable. And I'm not exaggerating. Ninety five percent of the people who died fall in those three categories. So why would we apply the same you know, strict regulations on everyone? Keep those people safe. And by the way, if you're trying to, you know, have a blanket, uh, you know, kind of uh, quarantine, you're actually not targeting your resources. The people who are vulnerable. And that's why in New York and New Jersey, the people who died were senior citizens in nursing homes because they didn't protect them. But, yeah, Atlas called the the. Uh uh, position of not reopening schools or doing only uh, uh, distance learning, perhaps the dumbest public policy decision in the history of Western civilization. And um, well, I, that's, yeah. a, that's pretty, you know, I think it's certainly one of the top uh, stupidest things governments have done. And by the way, you know, the left always talks about, uh, you know, income inequality and it's not, this isn't fair to the poor and the, and the disadvantage. The people who are being hurt the most by keeping these schools shut are the bottom 50% of kids. But you talk to any teacher, and they'll tell you, for yeah, for the top you know, 30, 40, 50%, they can do the online learning. It's the, it's the people at the bottom are basically getting no education at all. A lot of these parents don't even have computers in their homes. He is Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Have a great week. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We haven't gotten to this yet, but uh, it's important. We won't get a lot of media attention because the media is basically comprised of know-nothings when it comes to policy that is at all complicated. Now they're, you know, it's all horse race all the time. But President Trump signed an executive order to uh, lower prescription drug prices over the weekend. And this is to bring prescription drug prices for Americans in line with what Big Pharma charges foreign countries for the same drugs. This is not exactly a market reform, but I would argue about as close as you can get to one by executive order, given the construct of our Medicare system, the government's involvement as the largest purchaser of health care before Obamacare, much less subsequently. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Gerard Gianoli, neuroautologist at the Ear and Balance Institute and a clinical associate professor at Tulane University School of Medicine. He has written on the topic uh, in the context of drug and vaccine innovation. Dr. Gianoli, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. What's your perspective on Trump's executive order? I don't think is exactly mine as I just described it. What's your perspective? My feelings are, as far as when we're talking about a free market, there's no way to get a coerced free market. The best thing you can do is remove restrictions. Whenever in the executive order that Trump just enacted on September 13th, basically installs price controls on the drug manufacturers, which will give a short-term benefit and that will have lower prices. But long-term, it's going to inhibit any sort of research any sort of development of new drugs, that kind of thing, because one, there's going to be less money and there's less profit motive. It's also going to lead to shortages of the current drugs, black markets, waiting lines, and eventually rationing. Right now, I don't know if most people don't realize this, but in the hospital, Medicare Part B basically has price controls for a bunch of different medications you use in the hospital. And since they did that, going back maybe about 15 years ago, we started having shortages of drugs in the hospitals. And the, probably the best example is IV saline, also known as salt water. It's hard to believe, but we have a shortage of salt water on a regular basis in the hospitals, and it's because of these price controls. Look, I, I see, see. I agree with you. You know, in the the famous distillation of what you're describing by Milton Friedman, if you put the government in charge of the Sahara Desert in four years, it would be out of sand. But but in this instance, though, I mean, again, given the limited latitude President had to say you're going to charge Americans the same thing as the negotiated price that you're charging for foreign consumers. Well, that price was negotiated between the government and these foreign governments and Big Pharma. So it's not exactly a price control. It's more of an indexing prices for Americans to the negotiated prices between pharma and foreign governments, isn't it? You're absolutely right. It's not exactly price controls, but it's essentially a price control. I mean, it's a different type of price control. It's a floating price control. And I suspect what you're going to see is what they charge other countries is going to go up rather than go down. And then the problem that you have is that you're in a system that is beset by price controls with respect to reimbursement rates and the arbitrary setting of said rates. And so then Big Pharma manipulates those rates with private insurers jacking those way up so that they can make up the difference and still make a profit when it comes to the reimbursement rates they get for Medicaid and Medicare. 
Right. The whole thing is the, the best description I've ever heard is Scott Gottlieb called it kabuki pricing. The thing that a lot of people don't realize is the main reason for the surge in prices over the last 10 years or so has been the development of the pharmacy benefit managers. They're very poorly understood by most of the population, but you go back about early 2000s, pharmacy benefit managers were these small companies that acted as middlemen getting the drugs from the big pharma to the drugstores and the patients. They really didn't add much in the way of pricing. They just acted as the middleman. Over the last 10, 15 years, these guys have become behemoths. Back in the early 2000s, there was more than 60 of these PBMs. Now there's less than 30, and there's three of them that control more than 80% of American drug supply. And they're owned by United Healthcare, Express Scripts, and CVS. And so what's happened is they've raised the prices while what is being charged ultimately, or what they're actually getting paid, the big farm, it has stayed relatively flat, especially over the last five years or so. And all of the extra money is going to these PBMs. Yeah, I mean, it's, prescription drugs uh, have, generally speaking, doubled in the last decade, haven't they, in terms of prices? I don't know exactly. It's been real acute over the last five years. And if you look at some things like epinephrine, if you get generic epinephrine, you can get it for like 50 cents a dose. But if you get an EpiPen, it had shot up to like $600, right. which is essentially the same medication. And it's because of this PBM manipulation that the prices have gone up. And one of the things that you do like per your piece is the uh, executive order that Trump signed in the direction of transparency. So customers have a little bit better sense of what they're really paying. Oh, absolutely. And you, what you're going to see is it, when there is transparency, you're going to see immense pressure on the PBMs because they're making money hand over fist and they're going to have a lot of pressure to devolve. I mean, there's going to be a lot of calls once you see what's going on, because as of up till now, it's been completely secret. And they fought this tooth and nail to get this uncovered, saying it's proprietary, etc. And the reality is they're just fleecing the public. It's interesting. I, a good perspective, I think you, you offer to put this in context of vaccine innovation, because of course of COVID, and to say, you know, the way to facilitate vaccine innovation, generally speaking, I mean, Operation Warp Speed is sort of an anomalous situation. But generally speaking, and drug innovation generally speaking, is to take this time to rethink how we do the health insurance system altogether in this country because of the Rube Goldberg nature of it. You have these problems, the strictures and the way the system is comprised that uh, retard incentives for innovation across the board, life-saving innovations. It also distorts incentives. Rube Goldberg is a good description of what we have in healthcare, and it's every time we have a problem that props up, the government comes in, makes a, a diktat of some sort that fixes that but creates three more problems. Mm -hmm. And then there's more initiation of doing things to fix those three problems that create three problems each. And that's where we've developed in medicine over the course of my career. If we could go back to how medicine was run as a business back in the 80s, you would see prices drop dramatically. For example, if, if you had all the individuals pay for their own drugs and there was no insurance or Medicare coverage, you'd see a couple things happen. One is you'd see the prices drop dramatically because people refuse to pay these ridiculous prices. The other thing you'd see is you would see a lot patients on a lot less medications. I will tell you that it's not unusual for a patient to show them up in my office and be on more than 20 different medications. Yeah, It's just ludicrous. If they had to pay for all those, they'd be going to their doctor saying, 
gee, do I really need to be on all of these medicines? I can't afford this. Or, you know, look, I can pay for five of these, cut out whatever else you don't think I need to be. The problem is the doctors, because they know the patients don't have to pay for it, boom, here's another pill. If you look at the United States versus the rest of the world, not only do we produce the most amount of medications, we also consume the most. He is Dr. Gerard Giannoli. He's a neurologist at the Ear and Balance Institute, and he is a clinical associate professor at Tulane University School of Medicine as well. Dr. Giannoli, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Cause they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Yeah. Earlier in the show, we uh, spoke with Heather McDonald and uh, covered a wide range of topics from lawlessness on the streets to um, race identity politics in every nook and cranny of American society. And uh, she said, we are throwing our civilization away. Nothing is safe. Certainly not the academy. Uh, This has been the incubator for, uh, well, all of these bad ideas being propagated by not-so-good people. University of Chicago uh, garnered much acclaim a few years ago when they issued a statement ostensibly in defense of free speech and free thinking on campus that uh, colleges are to be free marketplaces of ideas. Well, I said at the time, and um, I've been proven prescient as per usual, that uh, that was, as we say in Chicago, change on the outside to protect continuity on the inside. That was a statement for outsiders to law at the University of Chicago to hold out false hope that that was going to be a bastion of free thinking consistent with some of the great thinkers who have actually uh, matriculated and taught at University of Chicago. Think of the school, the economics uh, Nobel laureates, for example, the Gary Beckers and the Milton Friedmans. It's sad. But the reality of University of Chicago is more like this. For the 2020-2021 graduate admission cycle, the University of Chicago English Department is accepting only applicants interested in working in and with black studies. For graduate admissions, University of Chicago English Department. To get an advanced degree in English, you have to be interested in working in and with black studies. We understand black studies to be a capacious intellectual project that spans a variety of methodological approaches, fields, geographical areas, languages, and time periods. For more information on faculty and current graduate students in this area, please visit our Black Studies page. So now everything is going to be subordinated to race when it comes to areas of intellectual inquiry. Northwestern University Law School, I mentioned this, and I believe I mentioned the University of Chicago thing in passing, too. We're building up to Columbia, so stay tuned. Right, These uh, all top, uh, ostensibly, all top 10 universities in the country, which means more or less in the world, best and brightest. Uh, Northwestern University Law School. On, they had an online town hall meeting a couple of weeks ago. Rod Dreyer, uh, Rod Dreyer, uh, I say Dreyer, Rod Dreyer brought our attention to this. Online town hall meeting, uh, Northwestern Law Interim Dean uh, Jim Spada was uh, one of those on the town hall. 
along with law school students. And uh, the outset of the confab, everybody said their name and declared themselves a racist if they were not a person of color, ostensibly. For example, my name is Emily Mullen. I'm a racist and a gatekeeper of white supremacy. I will work to be better. The interim dean of Northwestern University Law School, quote, I'm Jim Spada and I'm a racist. You would think if he really believed that he wouldn't be. And if anybody else did, he wouldn't be the Northwestern University Law School dean, would he? Even on an interim basis, he wouldn't be employed in Northwestern University. But this is the Maoist orthodoxy. You shall repeat your provided lines. You shall repent and genuflect. Columbia University. Bye bye, marching band. <laughs> uh, Barry Weiss, of all people, the uh, former New York Times op-ed columnist, tweeting this out, this uh, statement that was issued by the Columbia University marching band. Uh, they held a town hall this past weekend in order to discuss numerous an- anonymous postings and allegations of sexual misconduct, assault, theft, racism, injury to individuals and the Columbia community as a whole. Twenty band members in attendance all of whom expressed their tremendous dissatisfaction with the organization and the injury it has caused to our members and the broader Columbia community. You know, no specifics here. With the, this decision, the current band attempts to take responsibility both for the harm directly caused by present band members and for the injuries which occurred at other times in the band's history. They apologize for insult and injury victims have experienced as a result of actions perpetrated in the name of the band. The band as some sort of domestic or campus terrorist organization. I mean, we're talking about the marching band. They uh, ask for healing. They, uh, they, they suggest the need for healing. They ask for forgiveness. And they vote unanimously and enthusiastically to dissolve themselves. The Columbia University marching band will not continue to exist in any capacity and will no longer serve as a Columbia spirit group. It was founded on the basis of racism, cultural oppression, misogyny, and sexual harassment, which left them no choice but to disband enthusiastically to seek forgiveness, to quarantine for the purposes of healing. Northwestern Law, University of Chicago Graduate English, Columbia University Marching Band. As your campus beat, this is Dan Proft. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the program, after we uh, spoke with Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research, wanted to uh, tackle a uh, another development over at CDC. In addition to the study that Jeffrey Tucker dismantled with respect to covid spread at restaurants and bars, the impact of masks. And we'll get to that as well. Hopefully this is um, something that our friend Chris Rufo, documentarian, uh, writes for the City Journal has discovered he's really focused on digging in on the uh, critical race theory propaganda in all its forms and whatever venue it presents itself. And remember, we discussed the Trump executive order on uh, 
critical race theory, barring critical race theory instruction in federal agencies. You know, these consultants insinuate themselves in this. These are the paydays and they come in with their propaganda just as they do in the school systems. Well, President Trump trying to put a stop to it at the federal level, as uh, many of these race hustlers have made their way into the uh, upper reaches of government, as they have the upper reaches of corporate America, as they have the upper reaches of the academy and K through 12 school systems. The CDC is moving forward with a critical race theory program in violation of POTUS's executive action, tweeted Rufo. He obtained leaked documents that outlined the CDC's plan to, quote, examine the mechanisms of systemic racism and address white supremacist ideology. The 13-week series is called Naming, Measuring, and Addressing the Impacts of Racism on the Health and Well-Being of the Nation and the World. He also obtained internal emails and uh, a presentation by the series instructor that follows the same structure. As you see, the first three training sessions, and, and I should say I tweeted this out, his, tw- his Twitter handle is Real Chris Rufo. I encourage you to follow him. I also tweeted this out at Dan Prof Show. The uh, first three training sessions focused on the racism, sexism, and other systems of structured inequality, then teaching CDC employees that they must address institutionalized racism, quote, address institutionalized racism to, quote, really set things in the right garden of a racist nation, set things right in the garden of a racist nation. Session six through nine, CDC claims that racism is a public health crisis, quote, unquote, and that systemic racism leads to police killings of unarmed black and brown men and women and leads to the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. And who's been in charge of CDC for so many generations? So Tony Fauci, I know who's been there for four decades. Is he the grand wizard of the CDC? I wonder. It's it's remarkable. This is uh, akin to uh, the uh, African-American uh, History Museum and their PowerPoint that was posted several weeks back that we discussed before it was taken down upon public awareness of the identitarian pablum in that presentation. Well, this deck is just as bad. In sessions 10 and 11, continuing, the trainers will teach CDC employees that they must target and destroy the values of focus on the individual, the myth of meritocracy. We talked about this with Heather McDonald. We talked about this in the context of that same PowerPoint or of, of a similar PowerPoint at the African-American History Museum. Right. The idea that like hard work, these are white values. I mean, it was the PowerPoint was anti-black. It was pro-black person, black man, black woman as a victim. They don't have agency. It's actually these individuals promoting white supremacy while suggesting that they're attacking it. But I digress. Sessions 10 and 11. Target and destroy values of focus on the individual, the myth of meritocracy, the myth of American exceptionalism and white supremacist ideology. Textbook critical race theory. All those buzzwords and phrases. The final session teaches CDC employees how to become activists. They'll be encouraged to join an anti-racism collaborative with eight collective action teams focused on communications, making scientific publications anti-racist, politicizing science, uh, forcing everything through the racial prism to help establish the new racial order, as Eli Steele would uh, term it, and influencing policy and legislation. That's what's going on over at the CDC. Uh, The same CDC that's putting out junk science on COVID spread, the same CDC that didn't have its act together at the outset of the pandemic has been all over the place uh, between Fauci and Redfield on any range of issues from February to present. But this is what's going on there. You think all hands would be on deck uh, focused on COVID, making sure the data is correct, uh, making sure the communications on the topic were tight. But no, 
because advancing a new racial order is the most important thing. By the way, Black Lives Matter, I, I want to get this in because it's a good piece by Mike Gonzalez over at the Heritage Foundation. I mean, just in case you forget who we're talking about with respect to the intellectual leadership of these organizations. So you've got the academics and the authors, the quote unquote intellects, the Robin D'Angelo's and the Ibram Kendi's uh, pushing this through the academy, getting it into curriculum, 1619 project backed by the New York Times and the Pulitzer Foundation, right? Nobel Prize winner, Nicole Hannah-Jones, I mean, not Nobel, excuse me, Pulitzer Prize winner, Nicole Hannah-Jones. She hasn't won a Nobel yet. That's probably in the offing. And you have Marxist trained activists by their own admission, Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garcia at Black Lives Matter, raking in the corporate dollars, the extortion money, the please don't focus on us cash that they're getting for turning their sights on society as a whole to advance lawlessness, to advance chaos for the purposes of giving rise to a Marxist revolution. I mean, that's what it is. That's the goal. That's not me saying it. It's them saying it. There's something else Mike Gonzalez found at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, This new uh, project of Alicia Garcia, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, the Black Futures Lab. It's a venture of Black Lives Matter. If you click on the donate button, it will ask you to send your money to an organization called the Chinese Progressive Association. Why would the Black Futures Lab be a project of the Chinese Progressive Association? Connect the dot. Okay. Maoism, Marxism, the CPA, Chinese Progressive Association, founded in San Francisco in 1972 during the Marxist-oriented Asian-American movement. Uh, It has a very active chapter in Boston. It's been a promoter of the Chinese communists from the outset. A 2009 Stanford University paper tracing its early days to present, which can be found at Marxist.org. The CPA began as a leftist pro-People's Republic of China organization promoting awareness of mainland China's revolutionary thought and workers' rights, dedicated to self-determination, community control, and serving the people, quote-unquote. So Black Lives Matter aligned with the Chinese Progressive Association. And this is about building a better America for black Americans. This is about more opportunity for black Americans. This is about uh, remedying uh, past and current injustices for black Americans. No, no, not according to the organizers in their own words, as the evidence suggests. And 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 government agencies, even under a Republican president like Trump, continue to be compromised as those elements within the federal government, as in academia, as in all other civic institutions in this country, continue to hold sway and take the position of, I cannot last anybody, including the president. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Well, let's close with a little bit of a chat on uh, electoral politics as we stand uh, just a couple of weeks away from the first debate. Mark Penn, good op-ed in the, uh, the Hill, the seven keys to victory in the presidential race. He uh, suggests that the election is definitely uphill for Trump. However, everything has always been uphill for Trump, who even as an incumbent fights like a challenger. Right. Which is exa- exactly what I wrote about in the Sun-Times a couple of weeks back, that this race is a rerun of 2016 in so many ways because he is the challenger, because he's challenging the men and women of always inside the beltway and their ruling class mentality. But it's interesting because 
right now, I mean, a lot can change. 50 days is an eternity in any election, particularly a presidential election. And so much will happen between now and the debate and that first debate on September 29th in Cleveland with Chris Wallace moderating. That is going to be a watershed moment for this election. Former spokesman for House Speaker Denny Haster, disgraced House Speaker Denny Haster, I hasten to add. John Fahiri writing also in The Hill. A surprising Republican wave election could be looming. He talks about political waves. They come unexpectedly. Nobody anticipated the wave that came in 94 with the Gingrich Revolution, the contract with America. Nobody really expected perhaps the extent of the response to the Obama administration and Obamacare that the Tea Party precipitated in 2010. And he writes that there could be one brewing because of the Democrats' focus on hating Trump rather than on delivering value for American families. What are the Democrats running on, he asks. The smart ones running on health care, the same issue that carried them in 2018 to victory. But the top of the ticket isn't focused on health care. It's focused on hating Trump. Will hating Trump work in districts that went for Trump the first time? I don't know. It works on raising money from the uber wealthy who despise Trump because he's a traitor to their class. But for normal Americans, hating Trump isn't the main message they want to hear. And he looks at some districts in the middle of Michigan. He looks at Minnesota's 2nd District, looking at Jersey's 7th district. The um, voters are restless to get on with their lives, disgusted by a political class that continually flouts the laws in private that they tout in public. Uh, Pelosi's hair gate, just one example of politicians behaving badly. If the enthusiasm you're seeing from for Trump on the trail, as expressed in the rally attendance and the closing that's already happened with the notion that you have to build in a couple of points because it's about twice as likely a Trump supporter will not respond to a pollster, honestly, as compared to a Biden voter, according to some polling on the topic, ironically. You know, it seems unlikely for somebody who is so unliked generally that a wave could follow him. He could crest in on a wave and bring the Republican Party along with him, not just in terms of holding the Senate, but even a prospect very few are talking about right now, which is to regain control of the House and depose Pelosi. But um, it, very volatile times. And I think here he's on to something when he talks about uh, where the Democrat messaging is versus where it needs to be, not just in terms of responding to the exigencies of the day, but also in terms of framing the choice. What's our value add? We hate Trump. Okay, well, if I vote for you and Trump is gone, then what do I get other than your residual hatred of President Trump that's now in the past? We'll uh, pick it up there, have more conversation on all of the topics we covered today on tomorrow's show. Thanks for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again. This is the Dan Proft Show.